Okay, checking in here on another episode of the Steve Laidlaw podcast. We're continuing our NHL redraft series. This time we're doing the 2002 NHL entry draft and drafting with me, I am pleased to be joined by Larry Fisher, senior writer and head scout for the hockey writers, as well as a Western Canada scout for FC Hockey. Larry, how are you doing? I'm good, Stephen. Thanks for having me on. Uh, looking forward to talking some hockey during these uh, strange times. Absolutely. And jumping right into it, let's set up kind of where you were at in the world in 2002. What do you remember from that time in this draft? Yeah, interesting time for me. It's, it's crazy for me to think that this year's draft class is born in 2002, the kids that are getting drafted in 2020 because 2002 was my grad year, uh, high school grad year, not to date myself too much, but I was back on the prairies and uh, it was my high school grad year, but not my NHL draft year. I was, uh, I'm a November birthday, so uh, the late birthday pushed me into the 2003 draft year, but I grew up playing uh, with and against uh, a lot of the kids in this draft class, so uh, definitely a, a familiar year. I, I did have to kind of go down the rabbit hole and and discover some names and stuff from back then. But uh, a lot of it came back quite quickly just because it, it was a, a year that I followed closely at the time with a lot of my friends and, and former teammates getting drafted. Man, Larry, that's tough to have to slide into that loaded 2003 draft class. Yeah, no doubt. And it, that's what I tell people. That's why I never got drafted is because uh, it was it was too good of a draft class. But that's uh, – I think I knew by that point that I was going to be in media or that I would have a better chance of making the NHL in media than uh, on the ice. I topped out playing uh, junior B and a couple junior A tryouts. So it uh, wasn't a legitimate draft prospect. Well, if Bergeron and, and Weber are going in the second round, none of us have any hope. Yeah, no doubt. That draft, uh, the more you look back on it, the more stacked it seems. Yeah, but we're doing 2002 here, and there's some talent in this one as well. Uh, just a couple of things that, that I remember from back then. Steve Eiserman wins his last cup, and then, and then Scotty Bowman retires on that Red Wings Cup team as well. Dominic Hasek, he gets his cup. And they beat Arturs Urbe and the Carolina Hurricanes in their first appearance in the Stanley Cup Finals. So that was, uh, that was a good one that I remember. Yeah, battle of the, the goalies with the old school masks, Hasek and Urbe. Uh, they, they had some, uh, that was a, quite the goaltending series. And I remember Igor Larionov had a triple overtime goal. I think it was game three. Uh, they had split the first two games. Detroit goes up 2-1 and then went on to win the series. And that Igor Larionov game, uh, some of the other goal scorers, Jeff O'Neill, the O-Dog, and uh, Brett Hall also scored in that game. So that was a, uh, an interesting final to look back on. And for me, uh, a big thing in that playoffs, maybe not so much the Stanley Cup final didn't stand out, but Detroit and Colorado had an epic seven-game series in the, the Western Conference final. And uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs actually reached the Eastern Conference final, winning a seven-game Battle of Alberta, in, or Battle of Ontario, sorry, in the second round. So uh, those two series probably stood out even more than the final, the Detroit-Colorado and Toronto-Ottawa series from uh, 2002. Yeah, sometimes it seems like the conference finals end up being even more epic than the Stanley Cup finals, maybe just because of the familiarity of the teams. Like, certainly that 2 series is, I think that's basically the end of that uh, avalanche run 
and in a lot of ways it's the end of an era for Detroit as well and and the the epic rivalry that those two teams had for almost a decade. Yeah, I think that's, uh, like I said, the, the conference finals sometimes just based on the rivalry can uh, can bring out a, a better series than the Stanley Cup final because there wasn't much history, obviously, with uh, Carolina and Detroit at that time. But nevertheless, uh, good Stanley Cup playoffs. And 2002 was big for me for the junior hockey level as well. The Kootenai Ice won the Memorial Cup, or formerly the Kootenai Ice, now the Winnipeg Ice. Uh, and that was back-to-back years that the Memorial Cup made an appearance in my small town, Saskatchewan, uh, population 650. Uh, the town name is Looseland, L-U-S-E-L-A-N-D. But Andrew Bergen won the year before. He was a middle six center with the Red Deer Rebels in 2001. And then Cole Fisher uh, was a top four defenseman, assistant captain with the Kootenai Ice in 2002. So for a small town, we had back-to-back Memorial Cups uh, come through right around when I was graduating high school. So we had a, a good run there in my hometown with uh, some real good hockey. It's kind of dried off in the decades since, but that little era there was uh, one that a lot of people look back on uh, as some of the best hockey played in my hometown. No kidding. It sure seems like it's awfully tough to win a championship at any level without uh, at least one good Saskatchewan boy on the club. Yeah, it, se- it seems to help. They, uh, the work ethic, the, the farm boy side of them, I think, shines, uh, especially come playoff time. All right on. That's, uh, that's some fun reminiscing. So let's get into the actual draft order and what took place at the 0-2 draft. Uh, starting with number one, the Columbus Blue Jackets, they end up trading up with the Florida Panthers who win the draft lottery. Let's see, they trade back to Columbus and they pick up the tasty option of swapping picks in that 03 draft class that we we talked about. And they don't end up exercising that option because they find themselves with the number one pick again. So Florida gets number one in back-to-back drafts and and then they trade back in back-to-back drafts. Uh, So Rick Dudley developing a bit of a reputation for, for trading number one picks which he also did in 99 when he was with the Lightning. And I think that makes him a bit of the OG Peter Chiarelli, but Chiarelli waits until they're drafted to, to ship them off. Yeah, no doubt. Dudley's a, a wheeler and dealer, and I know he's got a, a pretty good role in Carolina now, so it's always interesting to see what the Hurricanes are up to as well. He's a, he's a guy that managed to stay in the game for, as you said, we're on uh, three decades now, so good for Rick Dudley, but... It, He's made some uh, head-scratching moves over the years, but he's not afraid to, to make moves, which I like because uh, sometimes it gets a little boring when uh, everything goes to script and there are no trades at the draft or, or no big blockbusters in general. So uh, I welcome more general managers that are as brave as Rick Dudley. But yeah, it, uh, looking back, it might not look that good on his record. No, but I, I do think it does, in a sense, work out for him here because he does pick up that option to swap picks in the following year. And just because he's not able to use it doesn't mean it wasn't good. And as we'll see, he ends up getting the guy he probably would have taken anyway at number three. So Columbus moves up to number one and they take Rick Nash, who I think he's he's very highly rated, but there's no real consensus number one in this draft. But Columbus, I think they do pretty well with Rick Nash obviously being the, the power forward that he is. And had he not been slowed by some concussions, I think he's a, a solid number one overall pick. And 
and certainly not a bust by any means. Noah, I suspect he will go rather high in our redraft. At number two, the Atlanta Thrashers, they take uh, their franchise goalie in Kari Lettinen, and I'll be interested to see where he lands in our redraft as well. Yeah, he's a guy that uh, I played goal growing up, so I'm a, I'm a goalie. So I liked Kari Lettinen at the time of the draft, and uh, I think he had a, a respectable career, obviously faded uh, – I never, never won anything big, but uh, there were a lot of games where you watch. He was an exciting goaltender who could make the big save. Yeah, he was really good on some very bad Thrashers teams. So I think he gets beat up a little bit, especially thinking about his time in Dallas where, where he's on the back end and, and those super expensive pairing with, with Antti Niemi that couldn't really stop a puck, drag those teams down a bit. But... Yeah, he has a good run in Atlanta, and it would have been interesting if they could have put a better team around him, what uh, what he would have done. Up at number three, Florida after trading down, like I said, they'd probably get the guy they would have taken anyway in Jay Bomeister, who I remember him coming in with just a stinking amount of hype based on his junior career and having already played for Canada at the World Junior three times. Yeah, Bo Meister's one of those guys I'm quite familiar with. I played against him in peewee and bantam tournaments. He was an Edmonton kid. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I knew him growing up, and, and he, was a, he, he was a mature player at that time, very uh, smart player, but also at that time he was a pretty powerful skater, which his skating carried, provided the longevity for his career for sure. And, and uh, you know, in Medicine Hat with the Tigers, he had a, a really good run there as well. I seen him quite a bit because I went to college in Lethbridge the next two years while he was still in junior so uh, a player I'm really familiar with from back in the day and uh, a guy that definitely deserved to go in the top five that year it's funny your uh, your assessment of him at that time certainly mirrors to what I was reading from his junior coach at the time he he references him as the second best skater he'd ever seen behind Bobby Orr and then he also says he's further along than Pronger was at the same age. So, Yeah, he was definitely a, a mature kid uh, ahead of his time, uh, again, especially playing against him in uh, Pee Wee and stuff. Just the way he controlled the game, you could tell he was a, a next-level talent. And the way he thought the game, too. I mean, his skating put him that much further ahead, but his brain was right there, too. So, yeah, definitely uh, a kid who was far along by the time he got to his draft year. And I think he's going to pop up in our redraft as well. At number four, the Philadelphia Flyers, they acquire this pick from Tampa Bay. So we've got another trade on the board. Tampa Bay is looking to accelerate their rebuild. They've done just about enough drafting up at the top of the draft. They trade this pick for Ruslan Fedotenko and a couple of second rounders. And... It gets them into the playoffs. So, and eventually Fedotenko is a huge piece of their, their 04 Cup winner. So, a hefty price to pay, but uh, I think it, it proves worth it for the Lightning. Yeah, they got some success out of the deal. And I'm a big Yoni Pickinen fan. Uh, I grew up in a family of Oilers fans. So, I was pretty stoked when the Oilers acquired Yoni Pickinen, even though it was at the expense of Jason Smith. Uh, the captain who led them to the, the 06 Stanley Cup final. But, uh, yeah, big fan of picking and another guy who just uh, – his skating was phenomenal in his younger years coming into the draft and a 
a real uh, guy who I don't think fully reached his potential or his peak in the NHL, but I think he's a guy we could still be talking about today just based on the way he skated and his offensive skill set. Oh, Larry, you're, you're, you're singing to my heart here, uh, a fellow Oilers fan as well. And, and as you referenced, Yoni Pickinen was the pick made by Philadelphia at number four. And yeah, I'm definitely in the bag for Pickinen as well. So I think he's going to come up in our redraft and maybe higher than, than he warrants. Uh, at number five, the Pittsburgh Penguins, they take Ryan Whitney. At number six, the Nashville Predators take Scotty Upshaw. And after those two picks, I'm thinking this this might be the, the spit and chicklets draft. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, Brian Whitney's had a, a good post-playing career uh, with spit and chicklets. Now he's got the, the pink Whitney going, the, the alcohol line that's uh, uh, certainly helping people through COVID-19. It's a pretty tasty drink and a lot of people are hitting that up, although you can't drink it outside too much right now. But Scotty Upshaw's a guy who lives in Kelowna. He has a, a home here. I've been to his house. I went there uh, one memorable night. It was a good time. So uh, I grew up, uh, Scotty Upshaw's another kid I played against, uh, as well as his older brother, Brent Upshaw. So uh, I know the Upshaws a little bit and have spent some time with uh, Scotty uh, off on once or twice here uh, since he's moved to Kelowna in his NHL playing career. Tough to see his career end with the knee injuries or looking as if it'll end with knee injuries. But uh, a guy, I think he did announce his retirement this spring, but a guy that uh, was a heart and soul player and, and certainly uh, almost finished up his career with his hometown team, the, the Oilers as well. He's from Fort McMurray, but grew up an Oiler fan and, and almost finished it off there. Would have probably got a spot on a PTO if not for the, the knee injury. So a uh, couple guys there, Whitney and, and Upshaw, that also have ties to the Oilers. No doubt. And again, with ties to the Oilers, at number seven, the Anaheim Ducks take Joffrey Lupul. Yeah, and he's another guy that was on that same team with Jay Bomeister in Medicine Hat. And Joffrey Lupul was a physic. he was never a power forward in NHL, but coming into his draft year and in his draft year, he was a physically mature guy. He uh, had probably the best pack in the WHL back then. I can, I can remember him being a really chiseled strong guy who uh, obviously he can shoot the puck really well that was his uh his calling card and another guy from that Edmonton area who I don't think I ever played against his team growing up but a, a guy that was certainly on my radar that I, I knew who Joffrey Loophole was uh going back to the Bantam draft and even before that no kidding so at number eight the Minnesota Wild they take Pierre-Marc Bouchard and he actually takes the leap right away out of this draft but injuries man yeah concussions I believe with Pierre-Marc Bouchard but he was a a fun player to watch a real offensive catalyst the uh, wicked good with the puck he could stick handle and also a playmaker so uh, another guy like Yoni Pickin and that I think had injuries not slowed them down we might still be talking about them today and they may still be effective players in the league uh, and potentially guys that uh would go higher to redraft had injuries not slowed them down. Yeah, I think there's a whole heck of a lot of that in this draft, which is pretty disappointing. At number nine, the Florida Panthers, they have the Rangers first rounder, which is sitting at number 10. And so they trade up with Calgary, giving up a fourth rounder to jump to number nine. So at number nine, they pick Peter Tadasek, 
and he plays three NHL games. Yeah, I guess he's the first bust we get to. Uh, nine, the top nine picks all, for the most part, panned out and had respectable careers. Peter Tadichek is the first guy that uh, probably doesn't come to mind when you think of the 2002 draft. And even when we look back, he was one of the guys, okay, I got to do a little bit of research here. What, what was Peter Tadichek in his draft year, and, and why did he not pan out sort of thing? So uh, one of the names that, that jumped out at me as I'm going through the top 10 was Peter Tadichek as a guy that, I didn't really remember he wasn't top of mind. As soon as I saw the name, I, I didn't recognize it the way I would have back in 2002 anyway. Yeah, and did you unearth anything? Because I, I didn't really. Not overly, just that, uh, yeah, didn't, didn't pan out, obviously. I think there was, a, looking through this entire draft class, there was, I don't think scouting was as refined back then. Obviously, the internet wasn't uh, what it is today as far as social media and and video scouting and you know it, it's become more of a it's easier to scout now from home than it than it's ever been and I think back then uh it was hard to see some of these guys and and, and sometimes maybe you only had a few live viewings and you were making a pick based on that versus uh how far the scouting game has come uh, in the last I guess 20 20 years you can say so I think uh he's one of those guys that maybe they took a chance on and, and just didn't pan out no kidding so Calgary, having traded back to number 10, they take Eric Nystrom, and he's not a home run, but he, he gets 600 career NHL games, so a, a solid pro. Yeah, and son of Bobby Nystrom, uh, who was part of the dynasty with the New York Islanders, so they knew they were getting good bloodlines there. And, and yeah, I remember him being a, a solid, one of those you know, bottom six forwards that could really grind come uh, a seven-game series, so they probably got what they thought they were going to get there. I don't know if they saw him being a, a top-six scorer, maybe more of a role player, even at tenth overall. And uh, yeah, he turned into probably fairly happy with that selection, uh, even though there's guys that had higher offensive ceilings that went later in the draft, obviously. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to number eleven, the Buffalo Sabers. They select. Keith Ballard and he plays 600 NHL games but he doesn't play a single game for either Buffalo or Colorado the first two franchises who who hold his rights which is a bit surprising because he was another one of those guys who his calling card was pretty powerful skating in his draft year I remember him uh, having that lower body strength and being able to skate the puck well but developing more of a a physical hard-hitting defenseman and again I think injuries uh played a role a bit in his, his development and his career progress, but a guy that obviously never quite lived up to the hype. But like you said, anybody who gets 600 games, whether you're the 10th overall pick or the 200th overall pick, that's a, an impressive career. Yeah, and it should be mentioned, he's on that uh, Canucks Stanley Cup finalist team in 2011. And, and while he's in, in the press box on most nights, he, he still plays some minutes for them and gets to go on that run. At number 12, one of three first-rounders for the Washington Capitals here, they take Steve Eminger with their own pick. Another guy who was a, a real physical defenseman, uh, not really the type that we see as much drafted in the top 10 or just outside the top 10 uh, in 2020. We, those guys, uh, the, the more stay-at-home physical defensemen tend to go a, a little later now. People would prefer a, a guy who has that puck-moving ability, the modern-day defenseman. That wasn't really Bemidger's calling card. He was more of a, a shutdown guy, but 
again, a guy who turned into a, a fairly solid pro and not a terrible pick by any means. Mm-hmm. And just looking back, it looks like he makes the league right out of this draft class at 18 and gets into a handful of games for the Capitals before getting shuffled back to junior. And he, he plays in the World Juniors and then, and then back to the OHL. We've seen this type of developmental path a few times. Do you think that's a reasonable one for teams to be taking, or is it a case-by-case type basis? Case-by-case, but a name that comes to mind as soon as you start talking about that is uh, Luke Shen, who did the same uh, coming out of Kelowna to Toronto and and maybe went a year early. Guys that are are already refined defensively, you know they're not going to make too many mistakes defensively, can play that shutdown role but they don't get that extra year sometimes of junior to uh, really develop their two-way game and get more comfortable with the puck and maybe play some power play time as their junior career progresses, be more of a a go-to guy in junior. They're, I want to say, rushed to the NHL because they are such strong defensive. They're not going to be a defensive liability coming out of junior. You know that they're uh, good in their own zone and and can make the first pass kind of thing, but that sort of becomes their ceiling. They don't – grow beyond that and Luke Shen's a name that comes to mind but perhaps a similar situation with Steve Eminger although I think he was always going to be a a shutdown type and and so that maybe was his ceiling to begin with but perhaps he had a little bit more uh, with a a different development path. I certainly appreciate the analogy to someone a little bit more contemporary in Shen that'll help frame it for myself and, and some of our younger listeners. So At number 13, it's the Washington Capitals again. They had acquired the number 26 pick in the draft at the deadline, trading Adam Oates. And then they trade up from 26 using a second rounder and a sixth to move up to 13. And they take Alexander Semen, which uh, turns that into a home run transaction for them. Yeah, what an exciting uh, player Alexander Semen was in his prime and at his best uh, Wicked goal scorer, awesome off the rush, just a a real dangerous uh, offensive scorer for the Washington Capitals. But again, an enigmatic guy who had some character issues. And perhaps, uh, I don't think he was, I don't think he fell in that draft. I don't think he was necessarily ranked as a a top five guy who slid down, as we've seen with other guys who maybe have character issues in more recent years. But I believe uh, Alexander Semin probably exceeded his draft uh, position with with his ability to be a dominant offensive player in his prime absolutely and i i can tell by your voice you're itching to take him in the redraft he's on the radar <laughs> for sure so at number 14 the montreal canadians they give an eighth rounder to move up to 14 from 15 with the edmonton oilers and they take chris higgins out of college yeah and chris higgins is a guy that you know, he did play in the top six for a lot of years and, and he scored, had some a consecutive 20, 30 goal type seasons uh, and, and maybe settled into more of a third line role, but certainly a, a bona fide pro who had a, an excellent career and can hang his hat uh, and be proud of the career he had. So a, a solid pick there. Indeed. And it certainly looks very good when you contrast that with what Edmonton does at number 15. They take Jesse Ninamaki, and as per Oilers tradition, it's a complete bust. Yeah, this was a rough time in the Oilers draft history, especially because they had 
so many picks. They were stockpiling picks in these years, and the amount of misses versus hits, especially in the first round, was uh, the reason for the decade of darkness. They had none of these uh, guys coming through. Uh, in the These guys would have been in their prime of their careers during that decade. So a guy like Yessi Ninamaki was very underdeveloped, very raw talent, uh, just a, a, honestly a skinny kid out of Finland who had some offensive skill. But, you know, it was a flyer at the time. It was a reach. I remember watching the NHL draft that year. The the analysts couldn't believe they were taking Jesse Ninimaki at that spot, and uh, it, it didn't pan out. I mean, it was one of those swing for the fences. And like you said, they were doing a lot of that at that time. Uh, Alexei Miknov, the big Russian, a uh, couple years before. And they had, they had a run of first-round picks there where they were going off the board. And, and Jesse Ninimaki was about as far off the board as you could imagine uh, in 2002 at that time, at that spot at 15th overall. Indeed. And I think it's the last five or so years of Glenn Sather's time with the Oilers. They take five straight busts in the middle of the first round and even creeping as high as number six. By this point, Sather's moved on to to the Rangers, but the tradition lives on. (laughs) So some other some other players drafted uh, in the first round. Steen goes to Toronto, Cam Ward to Carolina. Some later picks, Dennis Weidman, Trevor Daly, Duncan Keith, Johnny Boychuk, Max Talbot, Curtis McElhaney, Matt Green, Yuri Hoodler, Valtteri Filpola. An interesting case happens in the, uh, the Battle of Alberta where... Jarrett Stoll and Matthew Lombardi are drafted by Edmonton and Calgary, respectively. But it's interesting because in the 2000 draft, Stoll was a Flames draft pick and Lombardi was an Oilers draft pick, and they both failed to sign. So they re enter the draft in 2002, and then they basically switch teams and go on to have extensive careers in the, in the league. Uh, that was definitely uh, something that stood out to me when I was looking at this draft and remembering back was that they both were re-entries, which we don't see as much of anymore, especially not a, a guy who re-enters and goes as high as the 36th overall pick in the second round, which Jared Stoll was. And, and Matthew Lombardi, maybe he wanted second round money type thing. Maybe there was a financial negotiation there with Edmonton because he was originally a seventh round pick, 215th overall had a couple strong seasons in junior and uh, managed to turn that into being a third round pick 90th overall for Calgary. And Jared Stoll obviously coming off uh, a key role with that Kootenai ice Memorial cup championship team that spring, uh, certainly a guy that Edmonton uh, who needed some character in their lineup at that time might've missed on their first round pick in Yessi Ninamaki, but they had two solid second round picks in Jared Stoll and, and Matt Green, who was a, a real physical uh, shutdown defender at Edmonton for a, a lot of years as well. Uh, him and Stoll had big roles, so it's too bad they missed on the, the first round pick, but they, they made up for it with a couple solid second round choices. Absolutely they did, and, and certainly those two go on to play vital roles for a couple of Kings championships, so they will live on. Okay, Larry, we've set the table. Let's eat. Let's do our redraft. Uh, Why don't you go ahead and pick at number one? We're going to throw out a name we haven't talked about yet. Duncan Keith will go first overall in the redraft. Absolutely. I think there's only one Hall of Famer in this draft, 
and that's Duncan Keith. So I think this one's a no-brainer. Excellent pick, Larry. Tell me about him. I, I had to go with him. Uh, again, the, the Kelowna connection, the Okanagan connection, I would have got uh, tons of flack if I didn't take Duncan Keith first overall. But he was drafted out of the NCAA and came back to Kelowna and was a big part of their 2004 Memorial Cup championship team. He's from Penticton. Uh, just a guy who we still see today. He's such a – his skating, again, is what's carried him through his career, and he's such a composed, poised defenseman with the puck. Uh, a guy that everybody who currently watches hockey can relate to because he hasn't – you know, he's maybe slowing down a little bit, but not a lot. He's, uh, his longevity was a big reason for him going first overall. And, again, in his draft year, he was a, a really skinny – kid he hadn't matured physically and then really a raw talent who they didn't know if he was going to be a defensive guy an offensive guy you know he he was a college kid and I think that maybe he didn't get scouted enough coming out of junior a and and so therefore he fell to the second round but as we've seen a, a trend a lot of the top NHL defensemen uh, of today were drafted in the second round so Duncan Keith being one of those guys who in a redraft uh, would certainly be right at the top in 2002. Yeah, I don't think there's anyone else you could have taken at the top. Certainly, you referenced his excellent skating, and that's what I'm always going to remember him for. He was able to take some just delicious risks at the blue line because of his ability to get himself out of trouble with the skating. And and those Blackhawks teams, I remember them being the absolute scariest team if they were down a goal and pressing and they pulled the goalie and six on five, there's just this sense of inevitability that they were going to tie the game up. And certainly Keith at the left point, you weren't getting the puck past him there. And yeah. he, he played a big part of that. His accolades, like you said, uh, three Stanley cup championships. He's won with, with hockey Canada, numerous international tournaments. Uh, he's a guy that has uh, quite the trophy case going. And, and again, just his, his on ice ability as well as his leadership and, and his, the intangibles he brings from from winning, it, hindsight going back, I think he would be the guy you take at first overall. Absolutely. And he's so far ahead of the rest of this class, I think, that my question is, where does he rank in the Pantheon and stuff like that? Like, certainly he has two Norris trophies. He's a first-team All-Star a couple of times, a second-team All-Star. He gets Norris votes in nine straight years. He even gets heart votes some years. He's got a con Smythe to his name. We know that Lidstrom is probably the best defenseman, even of the cap era, but of the post-Lidstrom, Pronger, Niedermeyer defenseman, where would you rank Keith? Yeah, he's got to be right up there uh, off the top of my head. He's Again, the accolades puts him right near the top of that list. And, and like I said, the Niedermeyer Maybe Duncan Keith's offense never quite got to the level of Scott Niedermeyer, but the skating ability is very similar. And the way he can kind of manage the game from the back end and control the game through his skating and his, his puck possession is, uh, is what puts him uh, right up there with the, the top guys since, like I said, since that kind of golden era of defensemen that we grew up watching. Uh, I think Duncan Keith uh, has sort of carried that torch forward, and he would be one of the first names that come to mind at the top of that list. Absolutely. I personally probably have him second or third behind Eric Carlson and, and probably neck and neck with Zidane Chara among this current class of defensemen. Yeah, that's fair for sure. 
Okay, so up at number two, picking for the Atlanta Thrashers. And they've already taken Ilya Kovalchuk and Danny Heatley in the top two of the past two drafts. They end up taking Kari Lettinen, so they're thinking we need our stud netminder. But I'm not going in that direction. I'm taking Rick Nash. Yeah, I don't think you can have too many. You can't score too many goals. I mean, you imagine what that team would look like with Rick Nash, Ilya Kovalchuk, and Danny Heatley. They need a center to get them the puck because they're all shooters, shoot first wingers. They didn't drive well. They they can drive good offense. I mean, Kovalchuk's always been dangerous off the rush, and and Nash and Heatley are more so maybe triggermen that need somebody to get them the puck. But uh, you'd score a ton of goals. Uh, Put it this way, if Kari Lettinen was drafted by another team, he wouldn't want to face the Atlanta Thrashers with uh, those three shooting on him. Absolutely. And you referenced kind of the, the need for centermen and line mates. And Nash, I think he proved in his time on those, frankly, dog shit Columbus teams that he could drive offense all by himself. You have to go back to his rookie year with Ray Whitney to find the only other guy who scored 70 points the entire time he was there. He could drive that impressively. He was a, a, a force off the rush just because he was such a heavy guy. And when he turned that corner, cutting to the crease, there wasn't too many defensemen who could body him off the puck. And, and Danny Heatley obviously had uh, Jason Spezza and then later in his career had Joe Thornton. So he had some good playmakers, but you're right. Rick Nash, uh, did all the heavy lifting in Columbus during those tough years there in Columbus. And Rick Nash uh, was the face of the franchise. Yeah. Like the situation there for him, it's absolutely bleak. I think perhaps his best line mate ever was Christian Husalius or maybe a young Nick Jaredev, an inexplicably high quality Antoine Vermette season. Yeah. I remember David Verboni being another name that played with him a bit, but yeah, you're right. There wasn't, a lot of support for him in that top six and on the power play. Uh, the Columbus offense ran through Rick Nash. So I think uh, that's a great pick by you for Atlanta. Absolutely. And he scores 40 goals three times. He scores 30 goals uh, another five times. And once he finally gets out of there, he does make a cup final with New York. He even won the Richard Trophy in 2004 with a, a 41 goal season. Where do you think he ranks kind of among the goal scorers of his generation? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, again, I still consider him in that same generation with Ovechkin because he came along only a few years later and nobody's really on Ovechkin's level. He, he could catch Wayne Gretzky. Hopefully he gets uh, the rest of this season to tack on some goals and, and, and continue pursuing that record. I mean, I think Ovechkin's in a class of his own, but Rick Nash isn't too far down the line when, uh, you go through, again, we mentioned guys like Kovalchuk and Heatley, who maybe were better shooters and better pure scorers than Nash, but the numbers don't lie. Rick Nash was a, a consistent offensive guy who put up, again, his consistency in scoring goals was impressive, especially considering the supporting cast and what would have he done if he had Jason Spezza feeding him the puck for a decade straight. You know, Rick Nash's numbers might be uh, a lot more impressive than they were. So I think he had the... Again, I think the thing with Nash is he could shoot the puck, but his big thing was he was just such a, a heavy power forward that uh, he could take it to the net. Not too many uh, defensemen could interrupt him and not too many goaltenders could stand their ground when uh, he came barreling in. So almost had the, the Eric Lindros effect going for him with uh, how 
heavy he was and how hard he was to handle off the rush. So Rick Nash certainly uh, is in that conversation. I don't think of him as a, as a pure sniper like I do Kovalchuk and Heatley as far as a Ovechkin-level goal scorer, but the goal totals put him in the conversation to be, uh, I don't want to throw it if saves in the top 10 or top 20 of his generation, but certainly the, the numbers bode well for Rick Nash. Yeah, just to throw some of the numbers at you, he's tied for 69th all-time with Pavel Bure at 437 goals. And in terms of goals per game since 2000, he's tied for ninth with Hosa behind basically all the names that you listed off. And there's some Stamkos and Crosby and Malkin mixed in there as well. So yeah, like you said, probably a top 10 guy of this generation. And Lord only knows what he might have done with anyone else to play with. And it, it, frankly, if he's not trapped in Ken Hitchcock's system for all of his prime. Yeah, I think, uh, like you said, one of the names that stood out there when you were running down the list, Marion Hosa. I think he would be just behind Marion Hosa, but two guys that played a, a pretty similar style of power forward and, and the way they scored their goals. I think Rick Nash, Marion Hosa would be uh, neck and neck on my list. Right on. So up at number three for the Florida Panthers, where are you going, Larry? I think I have to go with uh, the pick that the Florida Panthers made. Uh, Jay Bomeister for me. Yeah, we, we are in full agreement. I had him in that exact same spot. I, I fiddled around with the idea of sending him to the Thrashers, but ultimately I, I couldn't resist Nash. So Jay Bomeister, yeah, I think he's definitely the pick at number three. Tell me about him. Again, I just think the way he was coming out of junior, how much of a, a man he already was in, a, in a, a man among boys playing in the WHL just from his ability to, to process the game and, and, and outskate. He could outskate guys, but he could definitely outthink them. And I never did think he was going to be a huge offensive guy. I know he was getting the Scott Niedermeyer compare coming out of junior because he skated you know, as well as Niedermeyer at that time. But I don't think I ever saw him being a power play quarterback or a big offensive guy, but certainly a guy who could log a ton of minutes, play in all situations, key situations, and a, a guy who uh, it was great to see him get the Stanley Cup in 2019 and, and, and obviously very sad to see what happened with the, the heart injury in, in 2020. So uh, quite the whirlwind year for Jay Bowmeister with raising the Stanley Cup, finally getting all uh, that whole career of perseverance uh, pays off in 2019 on kind of a, uh, storybook season for the St. Louis Blues and then to have him uh, go down with kind of a, a very scary incident with a heart uh, injury in, in in Anaheim in 2020. So uh, I wish all the best for Jay Bomeister again, a guy I played against a handful of times growing up and and, and always uh, idolized or admired the way he could control the game and how much, again, being a goaltender, you see him from the other end of the ice, you can see him all work all the way up the ice and you could just tell that he was one step ahead physically in his skating, but also one step ahead mentally with the, the way he processed the game. We may have seen the last of Jay Bomeister, which, which is unfortunate because I think Florida has nothing else going on for them on the back end when they draft him. So they use him as an offensive guy, but really he was the modern shutdown defenseman. And we don't really see him get to play that role until he lands among the other Ents patrolling the blue line for St. Louis. And 
it takes until he lands in St. Louis for him to play a playoff game. So it's so awesome that he finally gets there and gets to play in those big games and ultimately wins a cup because I think it, it certainly changes his legacy and, and the perspective on his career going from so much disappointment early on to, to hitting the pinnacle. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what a way to go out. If, if this is the last we've seen of Jay Bowmeister, at least he goes out on top with the Stanley Cup. He played more than 1,200 or more than 1,300 counting, 75 playoff games, 1,239 regular season games. So to go out with the Stanley Cup to surpass 1,000 career NHL games, and obviously he's got some hardware as well from uh, representing Canada in international tournaments over the years. He was a uh, a go-to guy for Canada, a lot of times at the World Championships, especially because he was on non-playoff teams. So uh, uh, an excellent career all in all for Jay Bonister, and, and he can go out on top if this is the last we've seen of him. Yeah, you mentioned it. He's a, a member of the Triple Gold Club, and I think that if the NHL comes back and they play some playoffs and, and Bonister isn't playing for the Blues, I think he should treat it like uh, Rashid Wallace did with the Detroit Pistons get himself a championship belt and have that thing up on his shoulder in the press box for as long as the blues are in the playoffs. Cause he, right now he's, he's still the champ and I think he should carry himself like that. Absolutely. And Brett Hall would like that too. He'd be pumped to see <laughs> that play out. No doubt. Yeah. Brett Hall's still in the bag for the blues, no matter how long his career went on after his time there. Okay. I think that brings me up at number four for Philadelphia. And as much as I'd love to take Yoni Pickin in here for them, because as we mentioned, it's quite the love affair for him and, and his sweet skating skills. But I'm going to take Cam Ward. And, you know, I think, I think we're taking a step down from the top three in this draft class, but I also think they need some goaltending. So what do you think of that pick, Larry? Excellent pick. That's where I had Cam Ward on the board. Uh, fourth overall, I was, Hoping he'd slide one more pick down to me. But uh, Cam Ward, obviously, uh, in 2001, the year before his draft year, he uh, came onto the NHL scene uh, right on top. Obviously, backstopped Carolina to uh, Stanley Cup in 2006 and, and was just a real clutch goalie in, in his earlier years. Uh, obviously, faded a bit and, and never got back to that level with Carolina. But again, uh, much like uh, Carter Hart, very similar goaltenders, Cam Ward, Carter Hart with their dominance in the WHL. And, and so you can almost rewind the clock. It's almost like Philadelphia is taking, uh, it, it's almost like they're taking Carter Hart way back when, but it's Cam Ward. And then Cam Ward's a guy, I don't remember playing against him as a goaltender, but uh, my buddy who I played junior B with actually married Cam Ward's sister and they have a, a kid together. So uh, if there's a goaltender coming up uh, out of Edmonton in another 10 years or so, and his last name's Nadeau, that's actually uh Cam Ward's nephew so uh, he's a goaltender the young kid he's about 10 years old now so interesting side story but uh, yeah Cam Ward uh, is uh, the guy I had penciled in at fourth overall and I would have taken the same player in that spot so nice pick by you. We'll have to keep our eyes out for that kid. Um, yeah the, the Flyers they're still rolling with Roman Czechmanic back in 02 but he falls off by the time the lockout hits. And that starts just an absolute odyssey of goaltending for the Flyers that isn't really solved until, as you mentioned, that they land Carter Hart. So 
how differently does some of those early Mike Richards, Jeff Carter years go for them if they aren't bouncing from Antero Nidamaki to Martin Biron to, well, they do end up going on a cup run with the three-headed monster of Ray Emery, Michael Layton, and, and Brian Boucher. And, and then there's some Bobrovsky mixed in there. And then the escapades with Ilya Brzgalov and, and the universe, and then Steve Mason. So yeah, I think Cam Ward can can solve some of their problems during really a decade-long run of of not finding the right solution. Yeah, there was a revolving door there. And again, the thing with Cam Ward is he was so solid and so uh, clutch early in his career, uh, riding that confidence from from winning a Memorial Cup in Red Deer and and being you know he was used to that pressure, the playoff pressure, and so he was able to thrive in that. Uh, 2006 he stole the Stanley Cup from the Edmonton Oilers I'm sure you'll remember uh, a lot of those saves I, I attended that entire playoff run I think I was at 12 of the 14 or 15 home games in Edmonton so uh, those are some of my best memories uh, I was in my early 20s uh, having a heck of a time at the rink uh, I did media for some of them but I spent all my college savings or I could have put a kid through college with what I spent riding along on that bandwagon in 2006 and Cam Ward stole uh, one from his hometown team. He's a Sherwood Park boy from the Edmonton suburbs. So that was a bittersweet ending, but good to see Cam Ward get his Stanley Cup. And, and again, he was so clutch early on in his career that I do think he could have really stabilized Philadelphia's goaltending and they could have had uh, at least one Stanley Cup to celebrate with, like I said, the Carter and Richards era. Right, but you wouldn't trade that, that college tuition for anything, right, Larry? No, I, I still text my buddy that was right there with me. Uh, we text back and forth. Those memories might be 15 years ago, and, and he's got a few kids now. I don't, but uh, those are two kids he's got. But, yeah, those memories are something uh, nobody can take away from us. And even if, we, even if they're a bit foggy, uh, we remember them being a pretty awesome year. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, so at number five, I didn't let Cam Ward slide to you, but who are you taking for the Pittsburgh Penguins? You know what? I'm going to go with Joffrey Lippel. I thought about Alexander Semin because uh, him and Malkin would have been pretty awesome together. But for me, it's uh, Joffrey Lupul, a, a guy that I was very familiar with coming out of junior. And uh, that was a, kind of a coin flip between Lupul and Semin. Uh, what way would have you went? I, I would have gone with Semin myself because I think that his absolute pinnacle is better than anyone else left in this redraft. But I'd like to hear why you think that Lupul's maybe longer stretch of play it warrants selection over Semin's absolute peak, which goes as high as a 40-goal, 80-point season. Yeah, and I think, again, just in my mind, thinking Semin Malkin, uh, I know Malkin wasn't drafted at that time. He came along a couple of years later, but that would have been a dynamic connection. But I do think Joffrey Lupul, um, again, he had some good years with Ryan Getzlaff in Anaheim, who's a, a playmaker. But I think Lupul really could have, uh, when Sidney Crosby came along, if, he, if Lupul was still uh, – developing and didn't have his injuries I think he could have been a guy that again flirted with that 40 goal 80 point type uh, season and I think maybe a little bit of sentimental selection there uh, a guy that I was more familiar with in his draft year uh, a guy who was probably again he went higher in the draft so probably a better prospect at that time even though in hindsight the the career maybe favored seven but Joffrey Lupul uh, I think maybe a little bit more of a character guy who would have fit in on those uh Penguins championship teams and, and could have had a, a good role in the top six, uh, much like how they went out and got a Marion Hosts. I think Joffrey Lupul could have been a, 
a goal scorer for the Pittsburgh Penguins and really a guy who could have been a good wingman for Sidney Crosby. That's interesting because when I was thinking about taking Semin with this pick, I was thinking about how well that Phil Kessel fit in on those two cup winning teams. And certainly Lupul isn't quite the player that Kessel was. I think Semin, when he hits his peak, is is in contention for that. But he, he does play, he does have a, a similar type of shot, right shot guy. So I think he would fit in quite well in, in a similar way that Kessel did as well. And it, the other thing that I was thinking about with the Penguins was that Whitney, while he, he ends up playing in some big games for them, he ultimately gets swapped for Chris Kunitz, which pushes them to their first cup and it'd be interesting to see if they could make that trade not having a defenseman but I I think they find a way to get his skill set another way yeah and I think what you touched on stylistically the Lupul Kessel thing that was sort of in my mind as well that uh the way Phil Kessel fit in there I think Joffrey Lupul could have potentially got to that level especially with a guy like Sidney Crosby who I think they uh they would have clicked quite well. I would like to see Joffrey Lupul on a line with Sidney Crosby. I think his numbers would shoot up quite a bit. And that's no disrespect to a guy like Ryan Getzlaff, who obviously is a, a premier playmaker as well and may have topped up some of Lupul's numbers uh, in his career too. But I think Lupul uh, was a real trigger man and, and could have been a good fit with uh, Sidney Crosby and a better character guy than uh, Alexander Semin. I think we've already spoiled my pick at number six for Nashville. I'm taking Semin. You you have any uh, disagreements with that, Larry? No, especially for Nashville. I think they uh, they need some scorers back in the day. Uh, I think they they would have considered that a steal uh, in hindsight if they could rewind the draft to that spot and see Semin sitting there. I think David Poyle would be running to the podium, and obviously David Poyle's had a lot of longevity in Nashville, and I think uh, an Alexander Semin selection at that spot would have only helped his cause. I don't know how Barry Trotz would have. Uh, handled Alexander Semin, although I'm not sure if Semin was gone from Washington or if he was sort of the falling out with Washington happened when Barry Trotz got there. I think he was gone already, but maybe not a Barry Trotz type player. He might have uh, preferred a Joffrey Lupul, but I do think Alexander Semin being as dynamic as he is, is something Nashville didn't necessarily have on the wings in those years. Uh, so I think that would be the the obvious pick, especially the fact that he slipped past the fact he slipped past Pittsburgh, uh, Nashville, be running to the podium to take Semin in, in that situation. Yeah, they were absolutely starved for goals back in those days. And I, I think there's a place for Semin as kind of your top line guy, give him a ton of favorable matchups and offensive zone starts. And, and I think they would have found a way to still suffocate the opposition while still using some of the magic that made Semin so good and landing him on a team without other elite players really that that uh, could prove quite interesting for Semin you know what what happens if he lands on a team without anyone to to bounce off of does it cripple him or does it turn him to a whole extra gear yeah Nashville's power play would have been a lot more potent you have uh you have two shooters and you got Semin and you got Shea Weber coming along in a couple of years so yeah they could have uh scored a lot more goals on the power play that's for sure Absolutely. So up at number seven, picking for the Anaheim Ducks, you already scooped Joffrey Lupul from them. So who are you taking, Larry? 
I'm going to take Yoni Pitkin in here. Uh, again, we talked about him, but uh, that would be my selection for the Anaheim Ducks. Oh, you stole another one from me. Okay. Yeah, Yoni Pitkin in. Like we've been talking about it. I don't think people realize how good he was in his prime. S- sell the pick. Yeah, I mean, again, watching him live was a treat. Seeing uh, his ability. Again, I don't think he peaked. I don't think he reached his potential. Certainly not offensively. And, and once his, I believe it was his knees that started to go on him and then maybe his back as well. But that took away his his dynamic, his his tool that set him, that made him a fourth overall pick and that made him arguably one of the best players in this draft class was his elite skating. And injuries obviously slowed him down. And then maybe one thing with picking it is he was never really that physical either. He could have, he was a bigger guy. He could have probably added a, a physical dimension to his game as well. And I don't think he ever fully took off on as a power play guy, as a, you know, he never really settled into a specific role, whether it was to be an, a kind of an offensive driver from the back end and, and put up a lot of points and be that, you know, kind of the high guy on the power play or quarterback the power play, as well as, uh, you know, he never developed that physical side enough to be a, a true shutdown guy like a Bowmeister, right? A guy who can control the game or even a Duncan Keith who can control the game with their skating, but mainly because they're so solid in their own end. But for me, the explosiveness of Yoni Pickening to, to see him live and see how much ice he could cover with a, a few strides, I would say he might have been even a better skater than Duncan Keith and Jay Bowmeister if we're just comparing skating uh, in their draft year and earlier in, the, in their career before Pickening slowed down. Yeah, I really do think of him as a Finnish Jay Bowmeister. And you mentioned he doesn't quite take off as an offensive guy. We should mention that coming out of the lockout, he scores 46 points in 58 games, playing huge minutes for the Flyers as their number one defenseman. But they decide to tank the next year. And while he's still good, he ends up getting traded for Lupul believe it or not, as well as Jeff Sanderson. And Lupul's pretty good for them, but ultimately uh, he goes to Edmonton and they don't really realize what they have in him. So he gets traded to Carolina for Eric Cole. And again, probably a bit regrettable for the team who shipped Pickinen out. And Pickinen's the number one D on a Hurricanes team that goes to the 09 conference finals, like really the only two years that they were competitive coming out of the lockout were 06 and, and 09. And he's a part of that 09 team. But uh, yeah, you mentioned the injuries and I think it's ultimately a heel injury that has him out of hockey before he even turns 30. Yeah. And uh, I mean, again, you mentioned the 46 point season and I was so high on Yoni Pikkinen. You know, I play a lot of fantasy hockey. He was a a go-to guy for my fantasy teams back in those years. And I thought 46 points was just scratching the surface for him. I thought he, uh, he had, you know, Norris potential. And certainly I thought he could have been a a perennial, you know, 50 plus 60 point guy, kind of like a Roman Josie is now type player. I thought he would develop into that. And then I hung on to him and and we, our fantasy leagues are quite in-depth. We have contracts that we sign ourselves and stuff. And he was a running joke that he was always overpaid on my fantasy team as a, a number one uh, offensive defenseman, which he never never got past that 46 points, which, in my opinion, was just scratching the surface for him. And, and I saw that potential, but I definitely overpaid for him in fantasy a, a few times. 
Well, I think just like those Oilers tickets, it, it was worth it all along. If, if we play Yoni Pickenen's career over like 100 times, how many times do you think he ends up being in the Norris conversation? He gets Norris votes one time, but is 75 times out of 100, he's like a, a Norris guy every second year? Yeah, I mean, I think his career, again, he was just scratching the surface. He definitely could have uh, been in that conversation a lot more often. And I think he could still be relevant today. I think he's a guy like uh, Duncan Keith and Jay Bomeister that we could still be talking about today. I don't think he would have ever got to Nick Lidstrom level, but some of his qualities of his game almost reminded me of a Nick Lidstrom coming into the league as well. And I think uh, longevity would have would have certainly helped him uh, be on the Norris ballot a lot more often. And and again, situations as well, uh, had he been in different situations, may have helped him grow his offensive game to a, a higher level too. But I do think he's a guy that if you replay that career, just his raw skating ability and, and some of his tools, even his offensive instincts, I think were never, you know, they always say he has untapped offensive upside. I think Yoni Pickinen is a, a guy, at least uh, from my memory and my fantasy teams, is a guy that had a lot of untapped offensive upside that would have, pushed him into those Norris conversations. Yeah, I'm still waiting for that well to be tapped. Such is life. Okay. At number eight, picking for the Minnesota Wild, I'm going to take Alex Steen. I like Alex Steen, a guy that's been a, a real serviceable player over the years. Uh, didn't pan out in Toronto, but it's been a, a clutch guy for the Blues, who was a top six forward for them for a lot of years. So, uh, you can't argue with the, the career that Alex Steen's had. He, I don't have it in front of me, but he's got to be coming up on that thousand game mark or past it as well. So uh, certainly a, a solid selection. Yeah, I'm just looking it up now. And Alex Steen passed 1,000 games. And right, I think he did in Winnipeg, if, if I'm not mistaken, this year, actually come to think of it. so You may be right. I, I don't recall. Um you mentioned his time in Toronto and that brings up the story that Pronger shared recently where apparently when Pronger was available after the Edmonton Oilers 06 Stanley Cup final run the Leafs have a preferable offer but ultimately they refuse to include Steen in the package I believe along with Caberlet and so Edmonton goes ahead and takes the Ducks package instead. And then two years later, the Leafs end up trading him with Carlo Koliakovo for Lee Stempniak. Just a complete change of heart in terms of how they viewed him. And ever since landing with the Blues, he's been a core piece for that franchise for basically a decade. Yeah, definitely a heart and soul guy. And when you're going down that list with the pronger trade and the Leafs being involved, it, it kind of brings back the, the six shades of Joffrey Lupul as well, because he was obviously involved with all that trades uh, in the pronger deal, pronger deal and then ends up in Toronto and all the rest too. But again, I think with Alex Steen, just a, a heart and soul guy that, that uh, maybe his offense was underrated at times too, but a consistent contributor who, uh, help a team win and he may have been down on the you know third fourth line with the blues when they won their cup last year but definitely a guy that uh, even in the playoffs you could see that he uh, had a big voice in the room and was a big part of that team even though maybe his offensive role has diminished in, in just in these last couple of years 
Yeah, he never puts up quite the the counting stats that you would hope for because he was he was an injury guy, but never to the extent that a lot of other guys in this class were. He just always seemed to be nicked up. So we're talking about a lot of 68 games, 72 game seasons. So he doesn't quite get the big jump out counting stats. He does have a 30 goal season, a couple of 60 point seasons, but he's a winger and he's getting Selkie votes a bunch of times. He gets heart votes once one year. I remember him scoring that triple overtime winner against Chicago in game one of the 2014 opening round. And they end up getting another OT winner in game two out of Barrett Jackman. And you, you thought that that Blues team was finally going to get over the hump. And then the Blackhawks wipe the floor with them in four straight. And it's like, oh. So picking in number nine for the Florida Panthers, who do you got, Larry? I'm going to go with Ryan Whitney, who uh, I guess uh, just the solid defenseman that I, I think would have been a, a good fit there in Florida. Yeah, so you're kind of rolling with a Jay Bomeister Ryan Whitney pairing on the back end. I think that would have helped them. Yeah, that, that never crossed my mind that I'd already taken Bomeister earlier for them. You're right, but uh, uh, defense wins championships, right? Let's uh, build it from the back end out, and eventually uh, if they end up with the right goaltender there, which they've had uh, at times over the years, Roberto Luongo and, and other guys, perhaps – uh, a pairing of Whitney and, and Bomeister could have been a, a ticket to success for Florida, who has built a, a fairly strong back end around Aaron Ekblad and, and guys like uh, Keith Yandel and, and the rest. But I think, uh, yeah, Ryan Whitney is a guy, again, off-ice uh, success post-career. I enjoy listening to him on the Spit and Chicklets podcast, uh, a guy I remembered as, as an Edmonton Oiler who, again, I believe had lower body, ankle, knee injuries that sort of Really, again, he was a pretty good skater coming into the leagues. He, you know, and, and towards the end, his skating got knocked a lot because, as you know, once you get a, a lower body injury and it's kind of a nagging thing or a reoccurring thing, uh, you take skating ability away from a hockey player. It's and, and especially when it's one of their strengths or something that they rely on, that can end a career in a hurry. But I do think Ryan Whitney had an impressive career. And I do think the more I think about it now, the Jay Bowmeister Ryan Whitney pairing would have really solidified the back end for the Florida Panthers in those years. Yeah, you mentioned it. The the injuries really cut his career short and and perhaps don't allow him to continue at some of the highs that he hit uh logging big minutes for those those Pittsburgh Penguins teams and those Anaheim Duck teams that he plays on. And by the time he's in Edmonton, I'm basically I'm picturing his foot like something you you would find in some kind of horror shop or something like that and it's it's taped on and he can barely use it and he can only turn one direction like Derek Zoolander and uh, it it doesn't go well for him but he wasn't without talent it's a bit of a shorter career but certainly he he hit some of those highs and is a top four defenseman for quite a bit of his prime. Yeah, and good to see him have the success he's had post-career too because that can be a, a difficult transition for a lot of players, especially when your injuries cut – your career is cut short by injuries. Uh, that can be uh, – you know, it takes a toll on a person's mental health and, and to see how people rebound from that, to see him have the success with uh, – and still finding a way to stay in the game through uh, using his humor. And even when he was a player, everybody talked about 
you know, Whitney, while well, he was a witty guy, right? He was known for his wit uh, as the last name Whitney. And, but again, Ryan Whitney, a uh, good career on the ice and really nice to see him transition the way he has off the ice. Yeah, that's, that's well said. So I think that brings me up at number 10, the Calgary Flames. And I'm going to take a guy who he has his best years there. It's Yuri Hoodler. Yeah, Yuri Hoodler was a, a guy who definitely had some, some good years in Calgary. Uh, a guy that had some good years in Detroit right off the bat as well. I mean, he was a, a, a really offensive-minded top six guy who, who put up some good numbers and, and just, in my opinion, just a, a guy that maybe didn't reach his potential as well, but certainly a guy that put up numbers and a guy that had the, the skill set, right? The, watching him was fun as well as a, as kind of like the Alexander Semin thing where just uh, had that raw skill to be a, an offensive catalyst and a guy that certainly could hang on, on any team, hang around in any team's top six and be productive. Yeah, he really only has the one big year where he ends up getting heart votes and he scores 30 goals and 70 points, teaming up with uh, a young Johnny Gaudreau and Sean Monahan on a plucky Calgary team that they actually win a playoff round. But yeah, he probably spent his best years as more of a depth guy on those back-to-back -back cup finalist teams with the Red Wings. And, and he does win a cup in 08. Do you think he probably could have done more if, if he starts out with another team? Or does he really benefit from having been slow cooked by Detroit and getting to learn from all those legends? Yeah, I think that helps him. I mean, again, it's always debatable with Detroit's uh, development model, the Ken Holland uh, slow play, slow cook uh, model and kind of work your way up the depth chart as they all had to, Gatsik, Zetterberg, uh, onto the, those guys like uh, Nyquist and and uh, and obviously Hoodler was kind of in that era with Nyquist. And there's another name that's eluding me there that, oh, Thomas Tatar was the guy that – Tatar, Hoodler, and, and Nyquist all kind of came in around that same time and had to work their way up the depth chart. And I think that helps them. But perhaps you're right. He could have had a, a more prominent role, more of a an easier ride to the top six. Uh, even you look at a guy like Elish Hemsky in Edmonton who was kind of drafted and right away put into the top six. I believe he was drafted the year before in 2001. So uh, had Hoodler went to Edmonton and instead of a guy like Yessi Ninamaki, he probably would have been right up there with Hemsky and maybe he ends up with a higher career total or maybe he busts. It's, uh, it's hard to say. I do think Detroit's development model probably got him some longevity in his career as far as uh, teaching him to be a role player where he can play up and down the lineup. And, and that helped Yuri Hoodler in his, towards the end of his career. But uh, when you said he got heart votes, I was honestly surprised. That was uh, one of those, you learn something new every day. I never realized uh, Yuri Hoodler got any votes for the heart trophy. Yeah, it was just that one great year in Calgary where they kind of came out of nowhere, and he was certainly a part of that. Um, number 11, Buffalo Sabres. Who do you got? Uh, I'm going to end the fall of Kari Letton in here. You know, the Sabres uh, – Need a, a franchise goaltender uh, around that time, I believe. I, I know Ryan Miller may have been there already, but Kari Lettinen I like uh, in Buffalo. Yeah, he'd kind of been lingering in this room like a, uh, like a bad fart going unaddressed. And I, I'm, glad to, I'm glad you finally addressed it, Larry. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Buffalo does well with their Finnish guys. Uh, they have a future franchise goalie uh, in Uku Pekka 
Lukanen, who's a, a UPL, a, a Finnish kid who won uh, gold for them at the 2019 World Juniors, which I covered in Vancouver. And I think Kari Lettinen, uh, much like Lukanen, Lettinen, I kind of had that going on in my head. But I think Kari Lettinen's a good fit for Buffalo there, even though uh, I believe Ryan Miller's their number one at that time already or coming into the scene. So I think uh, there would be some competition in goal for Kari Lettinen in Buffalo, but I think he's the – like I said, he, he's fallen far enough for me that I feel comfortable taking Kari Lettinen to the Buffalo Sabres. Yeah, Ryan Miller goes in the 99 draft, and he hasn't quite come along yet. He doesn't really arrive until after the lockout. Right. But you could see Buffalo, and they have two first-rounders in this draft, looking to address the goaltending position with one of those picks. And it would be interesting to see how – that kind of uh, goaltending battle would have gone because Miller, he, uh, he ultimately ends up having to play. He has to field an enormous load and he isn't quite ready to take on that load for back-to-back -back conference finalist teams in 06 and then again in 07. And then once they start shedding talent, that's when he's, he's an absolute superstar. So if Lettinen's a bit of a bridge between those eras, do they go farther in the playoffs? Do they maybe sneak a Stanley Cup out of there? Who knows? But certainly they're looking for a solution having moved on from Hasek. And like you said, uh, Ryan Miller hadn't arrived yet. Ryan Miller was a mid to late round pick where Kerry Lettinen was uh, an upper echelon prospect. So I think they would see him probably as a steal at this spot, uh, obviously back in the day, but even, uh, looking back, I think it's a, it's a good spot for Kerry Lettman to go and uh, plenty of opportunity there, like you said, to have kind of a tandem with Ryan Miller. And Kerry Lettman would have been the higher profile prospect, so he probably would have got the benefit of the doubt, the Reigns uh, being the first round pick versus Ryan Miller being a later round pick. That may have changed both their careers drastically. And I do think Kerry Lettman, like you said, those were the years, I believe, Chris Drury, Daniel Bear, some of those guys were uh, – leading the way in Buffalo uh, when they went on some of those runs. And I think Kerry Lettinen, with a better team in front of him, would have had more success in his career. Like you said, he kind of got stuck on some last line of defense for some really bad Atlanta teams. And, uh, and then kind of maybe he was a little bit out of shape. Or, again, it's hard to be a goalie. Flexibility and stuff gets harder and harder as you get older. Uh, even though they kind of tend to bloom a little bit later, like a Jordan Bennington, you know, kind of that 25-year-old area versus – forwards and defensemen forwards especially can come into the league a lot younger and have success goaltenders I feel once they cross that 30 uh, the flexibility and stuff is a I know for myself especially it's a lot harder to maintain uh, not nearly as flexible and athletic as I was in my 20s so I think Kerry Lettinen in a better situation uh, earlier on in his career may have had a lot more success and maybe he ends up winning a Norris or even a Stanley Cup like you said yeah, we certainly don't all get to age as gracefully as Henrik Lundqvist. So up at number 12, the first of back-to-back -back picks for the Washington Capitals. We've kind of hit this morass of, I don't know, decent second liners, second pairing guys. I'm going to take Franz Nielsen. Okay, Franz Nielsen. Yeah, good Good, uh, like I said, middle six player who's got uh, a lot of intangibles and, and yet has some uh, offensive ability, can chip in. I don't know if he would have been my selection there, but certainly uh, a similar player to the guy I would have taken there. So 
uh, as far as their role and, 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 and their slotting in the lineup. So I think Franz Nielsen is certainly a solid selection, and I think he would fit in well in, in Washington. Yeah, maybe this ends up being kind of like uh, how the Sedins were picked uh, in the wrong order, but with back-to-back -back picks by the same team. So they're probably going to end up getting the right guy here at 13 when you make your pick. But when I was picking Nielsen, I was thinking about finding kind of a better, a better fit to provide those early Ovechkin teams with some quality depth. And Nielsen, I mean, he doesn't even show up in the NHL until after the lockout, he plays his first full season at 24, but he's a Selkie guy for a long time. Like he's getting Selkie votes in seven different seasons. He's a bit of a terror killing penalties. He can, he can score you some shorthanded goals. I think that provides a good mix for them on a second or a third line. Yeah, definitely. And so I, I guess with that next pick, the back-to-back -back Washington picks, uh, when you take Franz Nielsen, the, the name that comes to mind, I'm not going to pick him, but the name that comes to mind that would be a good fit with him just because the, the current uh, landscape has them together would be Valtteri Filpu. I could have went with uh, Franz Nielsen and you got two-thirds of your third line. But the guy I was going to take and I will take uh, for Washington is Jarrett Stoll. Uh, the Capitals always draft well out of the Western Canada and the fact he had such a big role with the Kootenai Ice winning the Memorial Cup and, and being a good Saskatchewan boy, I... I can't let Jared Stoll fall any further. And he's, he's NHL ready almost because he is a 20 year old re-entering the draft. And granted that would be very high for a re-entry at that spot. I think Jared Stoll uh, is as good, if not better than Franz Nielsen in that same sort of middle six, but probably third line penalty killing type role. Yeah. I may be just showing off my bias towards players who are a little bit more contemporary in taking Nielsen because certainly Stoll also fits that role and and like you I have some very fond memories of him playing for some underdog Oilers teams in the early 2000s. Yeah Jared Stoll another guy I grew up uh, playing not with but I, I've seen him at some Sask first camps and stuff so I was familiar with him growing up. Uh, a good Saskatchewan boy like I said and uh, I like Jared Stoll for the role he had in Edmonton. He he played that role very well, very uh, good team player. But again, he's a guy like Ryan Whitney, who's had some success off the ice as well with uh, Rachel Hunter and Aaron Andrews among his partners. He's uh, gone pretty far and done pretty well for a Saskatchewan boy on and off the ice. But on the ice, uh, a real character guy who was a huge part of that Kootenai Ice Championship team in, in 2002. And, and also, like you said, huge part of the uh, Los Angeles Kings teams that went a long way and had some cups as well. So I think Jared Stoll uh, is a guy that I would feel comfortable picking that high in a redraft based on the, the character he would have brought to the Washington Capitals. And the fact that Washington uh, has guys like Eric Fair and uh, um, trying to think who else they had at that time, but they had quite a few Western Canadian kind of middle six or third line guys. Uh, Eric Fair is one that comes to mind as a, as a first round pick in 2003, I believe he went, uh, 18th overall the next year but they had that sort of uh thing going on there with their third line they had a lot of western canadian workhorses and jared stole would have fit in great there yeah brooks like would be another one who right a buddy in that mix. cousin so i better better not forget to mention brooks like and another guy who's doing well for himself off the ice so so jared stole yeah you're right that's that's a pretty darn good pick for the washington capitals i think he he adds a lot of swagger and good two-way play 
for those young Ovechkin teams that they could have used a little bit more of that. Um, you mentioned the name at number 14, Montreal Canadiens. I'm taking Valtteri Filippola. Yeah, a guy who, again, was a slow cooker in Detroit, but uh, a guy who's underrated offensively. I think his offensive skill set, again, maybe like you said with Yuri Hoodler, if Filippola started somewhere else in a, in a more prominent top six role, I think he could have put up some numbers. I think he, uh, his offensive skill is underrated, but again, he's because he was slow cooked, he's become such a responsible two-way guy. And uh, definitely Montreal has success with Finnish players. I could see Valtteri Filippola perhaps been finishing his career in Montreal. So it'd be nice to see him uh, started off there as well. No doubt. So at number 15, picking for the Edmonton Oilers, close us out here, Larry. Uh, you can't do worse than Yessi Ninamaki. Yeah, let's go with Scotty Upshaw, the guy who could have finished his career in Edmonton if not for the injured knee, uh, bum knee that took him out of the PTO opportunity. But uh, Scotty Upshaw, much like Jared Stoll, one of those heart and soul guys that brings a lot of swagger. I think uh, he would have fit perfectly in Edmonton, especially once uh, – Jared Stoll worked his way there. Uh, those two could have been quite the line mates uh, and quite the wingman for each other off the ice as well, I'm sure. Oh, my goodness. They had no chance. <laughs> okay. Um, that was awesome, Larry. So how it actually went in the NHL draft, who do you think won that draft? Oh, that's a good question. I mean – I think Columbus, you know, I, I don't think they went wrong with Rick Nash, and, and he was the face of their franchise for a long time. So I usually start right at the top of the draft order when I go through the winners, and Columbus did well with Rick Nash. As far as winning the draft, I mean, it's one of those drafts where, like I said, the top 15, the, the obvious, the losers are more obvious than the winners. Let's put it that way. A lot of guys went on to have good, respectable careers for the teams that drafted them or or moved along and, and had success with other teams and carved out uh, quality careers. But the, the losers are easier to spot than the winners. But uh, Columbus had Rick Nash as the face of the franchise for a long time. He's still involved there in a, an off-ice role. That's where he sort of settled post-career. So I don't think Columbus did bad. And I believe Doug McLean was the GM at that time there. And I think he, in hindsight, he would still be happy with the selection of Rick Nash. Yeah, I don't think he's complaining about that one. I had a couple other teams stick out to me for that one. So obviously Chicago, they land Duncan Keith, and then they have a couple of other NHLers in James Wisniewski and Adam Burrish. Uh, and then as well as Detroit, because they trade their first, so they're not even picking in the top 30, but they win the cup. And then they draft Yuri Hoodler, Thomas Fleischman, Valtteri Filippola, and Jonathan Erickson. Yeah, wow, holy, yeah, that's a, that's a haul. And they were good at those, you know, that was that era where Ken Holland and his scouts were pulling these mid to late rounds, especially European prospects. Uh, they had a gem every year, and that's sort of died off uh, towards the end of his tenure in Detroit and, and no longer. But when Jim Nill and, and Ken Holland and their European scouting director were going strong. Uh, it was hard to beat Detroit uh, outside the first round in those years, which really allowed them to have kind of that little dynasty run where they just had a, a steady stream of, of guys that were slow cooked coming up because they drafted so well in the mid to late rounds and turned those guys into quality NHL players. Well, what was it? 23, 24 
25, something like that, years in a row they made the playoffs? Yeah, it was uh, a record, I believe 24, but yeah, Ken Holland, uh, he, he throws a number out every now and then, even in, in Edmonton now, but certainly uh, a, a, an accomplishment that uh, is unrivaled uh, by in the, in the cap era and in the NHL and something that that record might stand for a long time. So uh, I think that and a lot of that was draft and development. They weren't a team that signed a ton of big name free agents other than to put them over the top. But the, the core of that team uh, going back to the Lidstrom, Iserman, Fedorov years uh, in the mid to late nineties and all the way up through the, like I said, the 2008, 2009, when Datsik and Zetterberg were more so the two guys, but all that was draft and develop, which, in a cap era, draft and develop is becoming more and more important again. But uh, they were ahead of their time with draft and develop in Detroit, and the the results speak for that. Absolutely. And you had previously mentioned the the losers of a draft being more obvious than the winners. And I just want to take this moment to shout out the Islanders and Mike Milbury, who they've been taking such a shit kicking on this pod. And, you know, they, they traded a bunch of guys off in, in some of the previous pods. But in 2002, they make the playoffs for the first time in seven years. And they pick 24th in this draft. And, and overall, no real mistakes to point out. So I, I just want to applaud them on that. Yeah, I mean, I think the Islanders, uh, you said they get, they get kicked a lot during this, that decade or so under Millbury. So, uh, any small victory is a victory for uh, Mike Milbury and the Islanders. So that's uh, not a year where they were a loser, which was uh, the outlier, I guess you could say, during uh, that time frame. Absolutely. And Larry, I've been asking uh, all my guests this question, but I, I think I already know the answer. Um, is there anyone from this draft class who, knowing how it turned out for them, you still irrationally believe in? Yoni Pickin, yeah, I mean, I think uh, he's the guy that him and, and a guy that we didn't draft in the redraft who I feel bad about, but he was another go-to guy on my fantasy teams was Pierre-Marc Bouchard. He was the guy I was debating with Scotty Upshaw at uh, 15th overall for Edmonton. I think Pierre-Marc Bouchard could have been a, a good Edmonton Oiler. I think he had a high offensive ceiling. But for me, Yoni Pickin's the guy that uh, to replay that career, I think he uh, – Certainly could have been in the Duncan Keith, Jay Bowmeister conversation as far as if his, his heel had held up, his leg had held up. I think uh, the skating ability, the longevity, and again, I think the, maybe the right coach along the way, defensive coach who could, you know, put him with a Phil Housley type guy who can really coach offense. I think Yoni Pickin in 46 points is uh, on the low end of what I expected from Yoni Pickin and not as a career year. So I think he's the guy that all things considered, I'd like to watch that career play out uh, again, perhaps somewhere else, or at least just uh, hit the rewind button on Yoni Pickinen's career. There it is, Yoni Pickinen. I, I, I knew that was going to be the answer. And it just leaves me wondering whether to title this the 2004 NHL redraft or uh, the, the Yoni Pickin love affair. <laughs> I'm glad we're on the same page with that because the uh, Especially, like you said, with the contemporaries, a lot of people, Yoni Pickinen's probably faded. He's not top of mind anymore. So uh, being that high on Yoni Pickinen might not be that well received. If I uh, went on 10 different podcasts recapping 2002, uh, I might not have been as well received with my Yoni Pickinen love affair, like you said. 
Well, this is great, Larry. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the pod. I see that you recently put out your April rankings of 2020 NHL draft prospects, which, as you mentioned, is kids born in 2002. So, uh, Larry, why don't you plug some stuff? Yeah, so obviously I'm in the middle of a mock draft series. I'm enjoying that. I kind of did the 10 different scenarios for the top 10 and then uh, for 2020. And then uh, a lot of fans, readers reached out and said, hey, why don't you do the whole first round? So I'm uh, in the process of finishing up mock five of 10. So I've just extended the, the top 10 to the top 31. So I'm having a lot of fun with that because mock drafting is sort of one of my niches as a as a NHL covering the NHL anyway and being a, obviously a scout at heart I've I've been doing mock drafts since 2012 publicly and it's something I really enjoy all the downtime I, I feel like people just can't get enough mock drafts right now uh, especially with the draft lottery sort of being decided so or at least the you know the teams that are out of the playoffs so I think the mock draft series is something I'm enjoying and, and certainly I'm still watching as much video as I can and and networking and I plan on continuing to put out monthly rankings until whenever the NHL draft takes place because I think uh, not only uh, there may not be any more hockey for the draft eligibles but these kids are still growing size-wise especially if it goes to the fall draft Uh, some of these kids could be two or three inches taller and 10 or 20 pounds heavier which can certainly change their draft position so I think uh, calling it a final rankings right now is a bit premature I think a lot of things can change by the fall and there's certainly no shortage of time left to continue learning and and watching these prospects that again if uh, hockey was going on right now I'd be fully immersed in the WHL playoffs and that would be uh, my main focus so allowing me to see more of the USHL some of the European leagues a lot of the tier two junior a leagues in Canada uh, checking out a lot of that even trying to watch some high school so I think uh, my rankings will continue to evolve especially outside of uh, the top 100 I'm up to ranking 350 prospects right now I may go to 400 for May just because I'm watching so many guys that are further down the list and kind of obscure prospects because I feel I have a a good handle on the top 100 so I'm enjoying the the deep dive on on who are going to be the Valtteri Filpolas and the steals of the 2020 draft well that all sounds like excellent stuff Larry I it's certainly a tremendous resource for folks like myself who are taking the work that you guys do and spinning it into opinions off of that. And I do enjoy looking back. That's something that I think is important as a scout is to, uh, even if other people don't remember what you said in 2012 or 2015, I think it's important to, to do those going back like we are with the 2002 draft, but looking back on, on my own work, my own mock drafts and rankings and, and, and republishing and, you know, kind of doing what we're doing, almost a redraft or a, at least a, a, a analyzation of my work from the past. And you definitely learn from your mistakes in the past. So I think that's important. And if other people aren't going to look you up from the past and, and like I said, kind of kick you when you're down and, and point out your mistakes, it's almost best to get ahead of the game and, and sort of laugh at your own mistakes and at the same time learn from them. So I'm always uh, trying to look back, especially in the off season, as much as I am looking ahead. So that's part of uh, being a good scout, I think, is being able to, to celebrate your victories, but also take your lumps. Yeah, that is the growth mindset embodied. And that's something that we should, we should all have that sort of perspective on, on life. So again, 
you've been really generous with your time, Larry. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. Yeah, thanks for having me, Stephen. Anytime, that was great. Well, folks, that was our show. Stick tap to Larry Fisher for coming on the pod and taking a trip back in time with us. Check out his work over at The Hockey Writers and FC Hockey. If you're digging the show, give us a like, give us a follow, give us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. I understand that really helps boost the status of these things. Thanks for listening and stay safe out there.